Well, good evening. You know, I've, I've been here for about eight months, and I just realized the other day that on Wednesday nights, the children's ministries upstairs uh, have concessions at the end of the service. And I thought, that'd be really cool if the adults did as well. I could say if you, you know, stay in your seat, do really well, you pay attention and listen, then you guys get airheads or something in the back. Well, we're not doing that, but let's all... Let's all jump into the message and pretend as if that was the case, all right? I don't have anything for you, but if you could just, if that helps you, then just play along. All right, uh, turn in your, in your Bibles to the book of Esther and chapter 3, Esther chapter 3. When we, as we jump in, I'm just going to do a really quick recap of uh, the ground that we covered last week, and since you've been working all day, and you've slept, hopefully, six or seven times at least since then. Um, uh, we'll, we'll just review where we've been in chapters 1 and 2. Esther chapter 3, and in just a moment we'll begin uh, our reading. I'm, I'm, we're going to cover quite a bit of ground tonight, but I'm just going to read as we cover each point in the story. And there is a reason I like to retell the story. The Bible has important principles for us, but you can't just take a passage and squeeze out the principles and have nothing left. To get to those truths, to get to those timeless realities of the Bible uh, it was written to tell us about, we have to pay attention to what's going on in the story. It's only as we follow the story, imagine ourselves in the story, that we then see what those truths are that God has for us. So, uh, as we look at the, at the first two chapters, here's where we uh, were at. Uh, the Jews are under the control of the Persian Empire. That's what's a little bit different about Esther from some of the earlier Old Testament stories. Uh, leading the Persians is Ahasuerus, the most powerful man in the world. We also find out he loves parties and he loves to drink a lot all the time. And because of this, it, he makes some interesting decisions. So the, the, the way the story opens is he makes this decision to dis- depose his queen who refuses to put on a show for his guests to replace her. Uh, his administration gets this idea that he should uh, round up girls from all over his kingdom, which, if you remember, stretched from Ethiopia to India and decide based on who he liked best, who was going to be the next queen of Persia. So the search begins for Vashti's replacement. And this is where the people of God enter the story. Now, while God's name is not mentioned directly, what we discovered last time is that uh, this is still a story about God and what he's doing in the world. And much like our own life, even when we can't see what God is doing, we can know that he is still working. So this is where the Jews kind of come into the story. Esther is taken as one of these girls and is brought to the capital city. Then she is in waiting for 12 months. For 12, that says years, that is incorrect. 12 months. I don't know who made this, actually, um, I made it. But anyway, she was, she was there for 12 months, or one year. And uh, was preparing to meet the king. She does. And it turns out while she's there in Shushan, everybody likes her. We don't exactly know why. But there, there was just something about Esther that everybody that met her liked her. And Ahasuerus is no exception. 
he decides to make her the queen. Now, as I said before, you don't want to disney what's going on here. Usually, at the end of the story, becoming queen is kind of a cool thing. But remember the guy she's marrying, right? Who wants to marry that guy? Well, probably not many ladies. And, and probably, to be honest, not Esther. This is not something that she would have chosen. Esther's ideal, and when you think about this in a larger story of Scripture, in the story of God's people, Esther's ideal would have been in, to live in Jerusalem. Uh, or maybe at least to live near a synagogue. To, to marry a Jewish man, to teach her children about the promises of God. To, to, to have a family that obeyed God's law. Not to marry a pagan. Much less a pagan like this, who's not a very good guy. So this, this is what happens. Anyway, it's not what Esther uh, chose. It's not obviously what Esther would have wanted, but she ends up being the queen of Persia. Now this is important. Esther's, Mordecai, Esther's cousin Mordecai also ends up somehow getting a job in the capital city. He works close by the palace. At the end of chapter 2, Mordecai and Esther's lives collide just a little bit as he, as he overhears an assassination plot. Two men that were going to assassinate the king because of Mordecai uh, finding out about this, two men then are executed. And by the way, when uh, We'll, we'll get this out in front because I said Esther is a lot more gritty than you thought it was or you probably wanted it to be. Uh, when, when the Bible says in the book of Esther that people were hanged, don't think Wild West. You know, this isn't like Tombstone or Magnificent Seven. To be hanged was to be on a pedestal and then pushed off onto a big spike or pole. They would be impaled and then just left there for everyone to see. So that's what it was to be hung. Yeah, not, not a really exciting or encouraging thing to hear on a Wednesday night, but that's what happened to these two guys, and that's important later, by the way. So, that's what happens in chapters 1 and chapter 2. Now, we get to chapter 3, and a new character is introduced, and his name is Haman. Haman's way worse than Ahasuerus. We realize that Ahasuerus isn't really the bad guy of the story. Haman is, and as Haman enters the story and things get even worse for Esther and Mordecai, this raises a question that we're going to answer in this message. It's a question you may have asked yourself. Why does God allow so many things to happen that seem to undermine his purposes? Why does God allow so many things to happen that seem to undermine his purposes? Would you sit with that question as we retell this story beginning in chapter 3. So if you have your Bibles, you've found your spot, let's look at chapter 3 beginning in verse 1. After these things did King Ahasuerus promote Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, descendant of Agag, and advanced him and set his seat above all the princes that were with him. And all the king's servants that were in the king's gate bowed and reverenced Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai bowed not, nor did him reverence. Then the king's servants, which were in the king's gate, said unto Mordecai, Why transgressest thou the king's commandment? Now it came to pass, when they spake daily unto him, and he hearkened not unto them, that they told Haman to see whether Mordecai's matters would stand, for he had told them he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai bowed not, nor did him reverence, then was Haman full of wrath." Now, 
Remember, Mordecai just saved the king's life. So despite all the bad things that have happened thus far in the story, it almost seems like for the people of God that have been taken to Persia, things are starting to look up, at least for Mordecai. But after Mordecai does this heroic deed, it's quietly recorded in the king's journal, and then apparently nothing seems to come of it. Now somebody gets a promotion, but it's not Mordecai, is it? It's Haman. And the first thing we find out about Haman is that he loves promotions. (laughs) He absolutely loves promotions and everything that comes with it. He was promoted, advanced, said above. There's some repetition here in those first few verses to emphasize what is going on with Haman. So in promoting Haman, the king not only gives him this position of power, but then commands all of his administration and their servants in the palace area to publicly reverence Haman as he walks by. And you can be sure, we just get this, you probably already have a mental image in your idea of what Haman looks like. What, maybe one of those you know, British actors that always plays the really evil guy. And uh, you get the idea, Haman was not going to let this go to waste. He was going to be in public a lot, right? Because he wanted people to bow down to him. He wanted people to reverence him. And so they do, except Mordecai. Mordecai doesn't reverence Haman. Now, we, we don't know exactly what this meant and what it fully entailed. Um, the, the historian Herodotus wrote that for Persian officials, um, uh, some of them would actually kiss each other on the mouth. If you were on an equal rank, if you were a slightly lower rank, thankfully, you would just have to kiss them on the cheek. And if there was this wide difference in status, um, you'd actually have to completely lay flat on the ground. Anytime. I mean, it doesn't matter what you're standing over. It doesn't matter how dirty the street is. This isn't nodding the head or getting on one knee. You would completely lie flat on the ground if someone had a superior rank. And Haman had a superior rank because he was just promoted by the emperor of Persia. So what got this guy going was going out in public and having people lay flat on their faces. This is what he thought of himself. Have you ever met someone like this? (laughs) So Mordecai doesn't budge. Now, this is now this is the case by the way with many details in Esther. We don't want to rush to judgment as to why Mordecai did this. It could have been because of his faith in God, that's maybe an implication. It could have been because uh, he was proud of his Jewish ethnicity and this guy was Persian. It could have been that Mordecai was just a stubborn dude and he wasn't going to lay flat on his face for anyone, right? And we don't exactly know that's not the point. The author here is not really wanting us to focus on Mordecai. Rather, what the author is doing by creating this drama is showing us, he's focusing the camera on Haman's reaction. So there's no point in speculating why Mordecai does what he does. The the point is it issues a series of dominoes that fall that's going to lead to the great crisis of the story, which is the near genocide of all Jewish people in the Persian Empire. Whatever the case, from Mordecai's perspective, from Haman's perspective, Mordecai was a threat to his authority, a threat to his status. He presented this problem. If Mordecai doesn't bow, maybe no one else will. And maybe Haman is just a little bit, uh, a little bit insecure. Now, 
It's interesting, isn't it, that Mordecai, and this is just some humor that's thrown into the story, by the way, it's interesting that Mordecai is not as careful about his Jewish identity as he's told Esther to be. Because he's already told all his friends, yeah, I'm a Jew. <laughs> and they, they tell him and they, they know about it. He's told Esther to keep this under wraps, but he has failed to do so himself. Haman finds out about it. Now, it's, common, it's comical, by the way, that Haman has to be told about Mordecai. Haman, in one sense, appears that he's really on the ball, that he knows what's going on, but he doesn't actually know anything about him. So so he talks to all of his subordinates. Can you believe this jerk? Have you seen him out around the palace? He never bows down to me. The guy shows me no respect. He's just such an awful human being. By the way, do you have any information on him? Because I don't know anything about him. (laughs) He's going to try to kill him. The only thing he knows about Mordecai is that he won't bow down. And for Haman, that is... He was blinded, so blinded by his own self-importance that he failed to look into the details. But now we've been introduced to the villain of the story, and here's what happens next. Look at verse, uh, beginning in verse number six. Verse six says, he thought scorn to lay hands on Mordecai alone, for they had shown him the people of Mordecai. Wherefore, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews that were throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus, even the people of Mordecai. In the first month, that is the month Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast pur, that is the lot before Haman, from day to day, and from month to month, to the twelfth month, that is the month Adar. And Haman said unto King Ahasuerus, there is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the people in all the provinces of thy kingdom, and their laws are diverse from all the people. You can tell he's really sincere, right? <laughs> Neither keep they the king's laws... Therefore, it is not for the king's profit to suffer them. In other words, you're not benefiting by allowing them to live. He goes on, if it please the king, let it be written that they may be destroyed, and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver to the hands of those that have the charge of the business to bring it into the king's treasuries. And the king took his ring from his hand and gave it unto Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the Jew's enemy." And the king said unto Haman, The silver is given to thee, the people also, to do with them as it seemeth good to thee. Then were the king's scribes called on the thirteenth day of the first month, and there was written according to all that Haman had commanded unto the king's lieutenants, and to the governors that were over every province, and to the rulers of every people of every province according to the writing thereof, and to every people after their language, in the name of the king Ahasuerus, was it written and sealed with the king's ring." And the letters were sent by post into all the king's provinces to destroy, to kill, and to cause to perish all Jews, both young and old, little children and women, in one day, even upon the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month Adar, and to take the spoil of them for a prey. The copy of the writing for a commandment to be given in every province was published unto all people that they should be ready against that day. The post went out, being hastened by the king's commandment, and the decree was given at Shishan the palace, and the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city was perplexed. Well, that's an understatement. Now, a lot of that may have been confusing, so I'm going to walk through the details uh, quickly with you so you get the the tension that's going on here. Um, Haman finds out Mordecai is a Jew, and uh, it says he thought, he, he was worried about the blowback of just killing Mordecai, all right? So here's what he thinks. I don't, I think this would look, the optics would look really bad for me to have this guy killed. So here's what I'm going to do. I know his ethnicity. I'll just have his entire race of people killed instead. That'll be way better. 
Now, when, when people are angry and, and when people become bitter and resentful, they can be a little illogical, right? But this is what Haman decides is a much better alternative. Instead of having one guy who refused to bow down to him disappear, he'll just have all of them killed. That's what he wants to do. You think he's angry? <laughs> just a little bit? Now, this may seem extreme, but to be fair, remember, Haman got a promotion. He's not a mid-level manager at a company. He's second into the command to the emperor of most of the known world at the time. So if he has a grudge, he can do something like this. He can lead a genocide. People are still leading genocides today in other parts of the world. And especially in the ancient Near East, this was relatively common. So Haman doesn't immediately go to Hasuerus. By the way, he, he does something else. And this is interesting. This is, by the way, have you heard of the term uh, uh, Purim, like the, the Jewish festival of Purim? Anyone? Okay, a couple of you have. Um, well, it's named after this. At the Jewish festival of Purim, they actually read uh, the, the, the scroll or the book of Esther, okay? So that, the word is based off the word pur, which is what Haman is doing. Now, Haman could have went straight to the king and said, hey, let's kill these people, let's do it today, and Ahasuerus probably would have said yes, because as we have realized, Ahasuerus says yes to everything. But Haman, even though he doesn't believe in Yahweh, he still has faith in something. And by the way, everybody does. Here's what his faith is in, the casting of Pur. What did this look like? Well, uh, this was a uh, uh, it involved a cube, like a small cube. Each side of the cube had prayers written on it, okay? This is what the Persians did. Other cultures had similar things. You'll see a, an, an example of this on the screen. They would take that cube, um, sometimes multiple clay cubes, that had the different prayers written on it, and they would throw it over a board, usually made of, of clay, that had sections for each of the months of the year, and if you would throw it and it would land on the same month three times, it would mean that the gods or the, the fates, in this case the Persian gods, wanted you to take whatever action you were going to take during that month. Okay, Let's, let, let me explain what's going on. This is happening in Nisan, which is our march. Haman throws his cube and three times it lands on Adar. Now, that doesn't mean anything to us, but for the readers, it would have meant February. Next February. 11 months in advance. Haman is, wants to take revenge on Mordecai and kill all of his people and do it as quickly as possible, but he is convinced that the gods want him to delay it by 11 months. Do you see what's going on here? It just so happens, right? Or maybe it doesn't. He's going to delay his genocide that, the, that Ahasuerus would have approved immediately by 11 months because of his trust in the fates. Now you know why they named the feast after it, of course. So now Haman not only has, is the one in power, but the Persian gods appear to be on his side. So he brings this request to Ahasuerus after doing his little ceremony with the, the casting of the purr. And here's his reasoning. He says, King, you've got to get rid of these people. Now, he doesn't bring up the story about Mordecai not bowing, right? 
uh, he, he puts another spin on it. He said, these people, uh, king, they're very, very dangerous. They're going to hurt you. Now, remember, Mordecai just saved the king's life. Haman probably doesn't know that. The king has no idea what's going on, but it is ironic. This is the argument Haman makes. And we notice the pattern. Uh, Ahasuerus, every once in a while, has an idea of his own. One of his only original ideas in the story is after he's been drinking for six months to have his wife parade herself. That didn't work out. And then since then, he's been taking other people's really bad ideas, right? Well, now he takes this bad idea and he says, all right, go ahead and do it. It sounds great. Take as many troops as you need and make this genocide happen. So Haman is the ultimate villain here, but Ahasuerus' favor is really consequential if you want to survive, if Esther wants to survive. And the tension in the story has just exploded. It seemed as if Esther and Mordecai were gaining influence, gaining power, and now this man comes in who has decided he wants to kill all of the Jews. Things got really bad really, really quickly for God's people. And then after, of course, as world leaders do, after deciding on the extermination of an entire people group, uh, the chapter ends by Haman and the king sitting back and having a drink. What else do you do, I guess? All right, so we get into chapter 4, and Mordecai makes this request to Esther. The camera's been on Haman and Ahasuerus. Now it shifts back to the people of God. Chapter 4, when Mordecai perceived all that was done, Mordecai rent his clothes and put on sackcloth with ashes and went out into the midst of the city and cried with a loud and bitter cry and came even before the king's gate for none might enter into the king's gate clothed with sackcloth. And in every province whithersoever the king's commandment and his decree came there was great mourning among the Jews and fasting and weeping and wailing and many lay in sackcloth and ashes. So Esther's maids and her chamberlains came and told it her. Then was the queen exceedingly grieved And she sent raiment to clothe Mordecai to to take away his sackcloth from him, but he received it not. Then called Esther for Hatak, one of the king's chamberlains whom he had appointed to attend upon her, and gave him a commandment to Mordecai to know what it was and why it was. So Hatak went forth to Mordecai under the street of the city, which was before the king's gate. And Mordecai told him of all that happened unto him and of the sum of the money that Haman had promised to pay the king's treasuries for the Jews to destroy them. Also, he gave him the copy of the writing of the decree that was given at Shishan to destroy them, to show it unto Esther, and to declare it unto her, and to charge her that she should go in unto the king to make supplication unto him, and to make request before him for her people. And Hatak came and told Esther the words of Mordecai. Again, Esther spake unto Hatak and gave him commandment unto Mordecai. Here's what Esther says. All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces do know that whosoever, whether man or woman, shall come unto the king into the inner court who is not called, there is one law of his to put him to death, except such to whom the king shall hold out the golden scepter, that he may live. But I have not been called to come in unto the king these 30 days. And they told to Mordecai Esther's words. Then Mordecai commanded to answer Esther, Think not with thyself that thou shalt escape in the king's house more than all the Jews. For if thou altogether holdest thy peace at this time, then shall their enlargement and their deliverance arise to the Jews from another place. But thou and thy father's house shall be destroyed. And who knoweth whether thou art come to the kingdom for such a time as this? Then Esther bade them return unto Mordecai this answer. 
go, gather together all the Jews that are present in Shushan and fast ye for me and neither eat nor drink three days, night or day. I also and my maidens will fast likewise. And so will I go in unto the king, which is not according to the law. And if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went his way and did according to all that Esther had commanded him. And here we're, we really are at almost the climax of the whole story, the whole book. Mordecai, who, you know, when, when you see the opening verses, it talks about how all of God's people hear about this decree and go into mourning. We realize as we're reading this story that what's at stake is not just the fates of Mordecai or Esther, but the fates of God's people. That's the tension. That's why this is not just an interesting story, although it is an interesting story. That's why this is just not an historical account, although it is an historical account. But more than any of those things, what's going on in this account, in this story, is it's raising a question about God and his faithfulness to keep his promises. And if God is a God who keeps his promises, then we read all of that and we wonder, well, why in the world is he letting these things happen? And that's why the Jews were mourning. That's why God's people who believed that God had called them out, who believed that one day God was going to send the Messiah into the world, who believed that they were special because they were given, they were the, the recipients of these promises that one day someone would come and reverse the fall, someone would come and destroy the snake. In other words, take what has happened in our fall into sin and turn it around. They believed that was true, and now they're wondering, well, if that's true, then why this? Why this? Mordecai sees a solution here in Esther. And this whole chapter is really just a conversation between Esther and Mordecai mediated by this servant, Hatak. Mordecai wants Esther to intervene. Esther doesn't see this as really possible. After all, she's not even seen the king in a month. And by the way, uh, if, if you're following the story, and if you remember episode one, and you've logged on to watch episode two, uh, what happened to the last time a woman confronted Ahasuerus? Now, Esther is not being overdramatic here. As Esther, Esther is not being unrealistic when she says that this might not work. From what we know about Ahasuerus, and when women disagree with him, or call into question a decision that he has made, especially an edict he's made, it doesn't typically turn out well for them. So Esther knows what she's talking about. After all, Vashti was beautiful too. Ahasuerus can say no to a pretty face, and after all, when he has the whole kingdom, he can always replace her. And in some ways, you could say he has because she hasn't seen him in a month anyway. Then Mordecai says something really interesting to his cousin. This is where we see God, not on the front stage, but behind the scenes. In verses 14 and 15, he suggests that if Esther does not act to save her people, then someone else will. That if Esther does not use her position to intervene, someone else will intervene. Something else will happen. It kind of, there's a, like a literary allusion here back to Abraham. And the author of Hebrews talks about how when Abraham, uh, we get this later insight, when, when Abraham takes Isaac to the mountain 
he thought even if Isaac died, then, then God would resurrect him. Now, as far-fetched as that seems, if you're not a person of faith, what it means is this, that Abraham was so confident in God's character that even if it seemed like all of God's promises were lost, which were bound up in the life of Isaac, then God could do something as radical as raising him from the dead to make good on the promises he has made. And perhaps... Perhaps that's how Mordecai thinks, though we can't be sure. Esther has a lot to think about. By the way, it's amazing that by this point she's not at all resentful. Haman, one, and there's a great contrast here, Haman, one person doesn't fall on his face in the mud to honor him, and he becomes so resentful he's ready to wipe out a race of people. Esther, her whole life has been turned upside down, and she's still not resentful. She commits to a three-day fast and ends with this phrase of courage, if I perish, I perish. The tension rises and we go to chapter five. Look at verse one. Now it came to pass on the third day that Esther put on her royal apparel and stood in the inner court of the king's house over against the king's house. And the king stood upon his royal throne in the royal house over against the gate of the house. Now if you follow in the story, the king's on his throne. Usually bad things happen when that's the case, right? Well, Look at verse 2. And so it was, when the king saw Esther the queen standing in the court, that she obtained favor in his sight. Could we say it just so happened? And the king held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. So Esther drew near and touched the top of the scepter. Then the king said unto her, What wilt thou, Queen Esther? And what is thy request? It shall be even given to thee to the half of the kingdom. And Esther answered, if it seemed good unto the king, let the king and Haman come this day unto the banquet that I have prepared for him. Hey, king, do you want to come to a party? I know how much you like parties. Now, there is humor here. It's okay to laugh. Then the king said, cause Haman to make haste that he may do as Esther hath said. So the king and Haman came to the banquet that Esther had prepared. And the king said unto Esther at the banquet of wine, what is thy petition and it shall be granted thee? And what is thy request? Even to the half of the kingdom it shall be performed. Then answered Esther and said, my petition and my request is, dramatic pause, if I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it please the king to grant my petition and to perform my request, here it is, let the king and Haman come to the banquet that I shall prepare for them, and I will do tomorrow as the king hath said. Now, this is great. Ahasuerus, by the way, is not a patient guy, right? He's not a patient guy at all, but Esther seems to have this strategy. She comes before him, and she is saved. She once again obtains favor in the most unlikely of circumstances. But by appearing before, I know this is weird, like, you know, if you're, if you're in a somewhat healthy marriage, um, like appearing before your husband usually is not like, you're, you're, ideally you're not afraid that they're going to get rid of you if, if you do that. But for Esther's case, by appearing without being called, she was breaking the norms. You could say she was going against her rules. This was not her place for that society in that time, in that, the pagan world that we're now in as we read the story of Esther. But... She obtains favor. And then we have this cliffhanger. Here's what I want, king. I want a banquet. Do you want to come? Oh, and invite Haman. Now, why does Esther propose a banquet instead of just act? Well, 
who knows? Maybe she knows the mood and she knows she needs more time. Maybe she knows how much Ahasuerus likes eating and drinking. Now, this isn't the same kind of banquet that we saw in chapter 1. This wasn't six months of alcohol. This was more of a dignified meal. This was not to make the king in like a stupor, but to soften him toward what she was going to ask. And the best part is she invites Haman along. They have the banquet. She requests another. And then we have verses 9 through 14, which is where we'll stop. Then went, look at verse 9, then went Haman forth that day joyful and with a glad heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate that he stood not up nor moved for him, he was full of indignation against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman refrained himself, and when he came home, he sent and called for his friends and Zeresh his wife. And Haman told them of the glory of his riches and the multitude of his children and all the things wherein the king had promoted him and how he had advanced him above the princes and servants of the king. Have you ever been to somebody's house where they managed to talk about themselves the whole time? You've met those people, right? Um, That's what Haman did. It was like he sent out a group text, hey, come over for dinner tonight. I'll tell you what's all the great things that I've been doing. And evidently, people came, right? So he he was able to do that. And then verse 12, this gets great. Yea, Esther the queen did let no man come in with the queen unto the banquet that she had prepared but myself. And tomorrow am I invited unto her also with the king. Then verse 13. He just can't be happy, can he? (laughs) Yet all this availeth me nothing so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Then, verse 14, said Zeresh his wife and all his friends unto him. Let a gallows be made of 50 cubits high. He's got a great group of friends, doesn't he? And tomorrow speak thou unto the king that Mordecai may be hanged thereon. Then go thou in merrily with the king unto the banquet. And the thing pleased Haman, and he caused the gallows to be made. None of Haman's success matters to Haman as long as Mordecai is alive. Now, he just got permission to eradicate his entire ethnicity. But that's not enough. That seemed a little, a little too cautious for someone like Haman. So I'm going to have him impaled tomorrow, and he's going to be pushed off a ledge 70 feet high so everyone in the palace grounds can see what I do to people that don't respect me. So here's where we're at, and we'll stop in chapter 5. It seems as if God's purposes for his people have hit a roadblock, doesn't it? It seems as if that's happened. Why, why did God allow Mordecai to be so obstinate? Why couldn't Mordecai just bow? Why did God allow Haman to enter the story? And why did he allow him to hatch this evil plot? And furthermore, why did God allow Ahasuerus to agree? If God has plans, if God has purposes, if life isn't random as we talked about last week, and God has promises he's going to make good on, why would God let things happen that undermine them? Why would he let so many things happen that undermine his purposes? Now, this is not the end of the story. Each of these things, in fact, leads to the opposite outcome that one would expect, and here's why. Okay, here's what this text is teaching us. You see, sometimes God accomplishes his purposes through the very means that seem to undermine them. Sometimes God, not always, but sometimes God accomplishes his purposes through the very means that seem to undermine them. 
It was, after all, Mordecai's obstinance that results in his position of power. It was, in fact, Haman's extermination plans that would turn the king against him. It was Esther's separation from Ahasuerus that brings his favor toward her. It was Esther's delay that gives Haman time to build the gallows on which he himself will hang. You see, God works behind the scenes, and one of the ways he does that is through his subversive providence. It's not always visible. It's not always obvious to see and to know what God is doing. In fact, sometimes God allows things to happen in the lives of his people, and that would be you and me, that seem to go directly against what he has promised to do. And even those things he can use to accomplish his purposes. God had given Joseph a dream that that one day he would be the leader of his family, that they would bow before him. Well, there were a lot of events in Joseph's life that didn't seem to add up to that. There were a lot of factors in Joseph's life that you would look at before the story is over and you would think, well, it's never going to end the way God said it would end. But the pit, the lie by Potiphar's wife, the prison, all of those things would actually be the very means God would use to turn Joseph into the person he promised Joseph he would one day become. Moses' exile. Moses wanted to be the savior of Israel, and yet he ends up in the desert for 40 years. He tried to take on Egypt on his own, but he failed. And because of this murder, he was cast out. Moses thought, I have this vision for helping God's people. I have this vision for saving God's people, and and, and now this has happened. Why did God let this happen? But it was that very thing that God would use to make Moses the deliverer Moses wanted to be. Now, the the ultimate example of this is obvious if we're Christians, isn't it? God comes to earth in the flesh as Jesus. Here is the promised one. Here is the Messiah coming to save his people, coming to save us from sin, coming to defeat Satan. And yet, was there any time in Jesus' life where his purposes looked more defeated than when he was hanging from a place of Roman execution. If there was any time in the history of God making and keeping promises that it looked like God had allowed something that was going to stop him, it was Jesus' crucifixion. And yet we know that the cross was the very means that God used to accomplish his purpose. In Jesus dying for our sin, he did crush Satan. In Jesus dying for our sin, he did create a people. In Jesus dying for our sin, he did provide the salvation that, looked, that it, it had looked like the cross had put a stop to. Sometimes God accomplishes his purposes through the very means that seem to undermine them. And it's possible that you look at your own life and it seems that what God has been doing for you, friend, has hit a roadblock. You can look at things that God has either done or that God has allowed in your life and you can wonder, if God has made these promises to me, if God's promises in his word are true, why would he let this happen? That can look a few different ways. God calls me to trust him. He calls me to live a life of faith, but he's allowed all these people to betray me and hurt me. How can I be a trusting person? How can I trust God if I can't trust others? Why would he let this happen? 
Maybe if you're a parent, you're thinking, God is telling me, he's making me into the character of Jesus. He's made this promise that I'm going to be more like Jesus. But every time my children misbehave, I'm impatient and irritable and angry. Why has God given me these responsibilities and stewardships that make me feel like I'm so unlike Jesus? You think God calls me to rest in him, but I deal with chronic pain. How am I supposed to find rest for my soul when my body is always hurting, when I'm always going to the hospital, when I'm always making doctor's appointments? How can I have this abundant life of resting and abiding in Jesus when I'm always distracted by this pain and sickness that God has allowed in my life? You may say God wants me to depend on him, to trust him, to pray, but he's left so many of my prayers unanswered. You know, Paul helps us in 2 Corinthians 12. In 2 Corinthians 12, Paul tells us, there's this this familiar text, uh, he tells us that he had a messenger from Satan to hurt him. Now, it's, it's not, if you know about the apostle Paul, it's not much of a surprise that Satan would attack him, Right? If Satan is going to do something to to hinder God's kingdom, then why not attack the greatest missionary in the world? And God let Satan do that. It wasn't from God. Paul said it was from Satan. So, Paul is doing all of this incredible work for God. Satan wants to stop God's purposes. He gives Paul this thorn in the flesh, whatever it was. Could have been physical pain, could have been sickness, could have been advice, his eyesight, could have been false teachers. We don't know what it was, but here's what we do know. Paul doesn't tell us what it is, I believe, so we can all identify with it. He asks God to remove it three times. God says no. But that's not all that God taught him, is it? God also, beyond just telling him no, beyond just telling him he was going to allow Satan to do this, God also told the Apostle Paul this, that Paul's, um, that God's strength would be made perfect or complete in Paul's weakness. You see, Satan wanted Paul to be stopped, but God wanted Paul to experience God's power. And the way that God was going to let Paul experience God's power and learn how to to depend on this sufficient grace was by letting Satan do what he wanted to do. God sometimes accomplishes his purposes through the very means that seem to undermine them. So there's two ways to respond to this tonight. Here's how I want you to respond. There's, There's two ways, okay? Number one, here's what it looks like to respond to this message if you're hurting if you're hurting. I want you to think of just one, if you can narrow it down to one, for some of you it's six or seven and that's fine. But if you can, I want you to think of one thing in your life right now that makes you hurt. One thing in your life that makes you think it's difficult to see why God would allow this. One thing in your life that makes you think, I don't know how in the world God can make good on his promises by allowing this thing to be there. If you've thought of something, then what I want you to do when we have our invitation is to come and to pray and talk to God about that. I want you to tell God, Lord, I'm putting this in your hands. And By the way, he may not take it away. He didn't take it away for Paul, but he used it so that Paul could learn to depend on God's sufficient grace in a way that Paul could have never learned without hurting. 
So if you're hurting tonight, I want you to come during our invitation and talk to God about what makes you hurt. And it's possible tonight that you really don't identify with this text. You may be thinking, man, this is terrible for Esther and Mordecai. This is terrible for the people of God. But right now, there's nothing bad going on. There's nothing in my life that makes me question God's purposes. Now, if that's the case, friend, that's wonderful. But someone you know is hurting. You may not be asking this question, but someone that you love and care about is. Someone in your family, someone in your connection group, someone you talk to before or after church. Someone that you've prayed with or someone that you should have prayed with. Someone that you've talked on the phone or someone you need to talk with on the phone. If there's nothing in your life that's making you hurt, if there's nothing in your life that's making you question God's purposes, then pray. When we have our invitation, I want you to pray for someone who is. I want you to pray for someone who's going through an Esther-like chaos that they don't understand. Let's, Let's all stand. Father.